Jonah chapter 4, the pouting prophet. From a human point of view, the book of Jonah should have ended at the close of chapter 3. After all, then the book would end on a positive success note. Jonah ministering the word as God commanded. The people of Nineveh repenting, responding in faith. And all that would be needed would be one additional verse. Verse 11, appended to chapter 3. And Jonah spent the rest of his life in follow-up <laughs> and disciple-building, teaching the bridge and the wheel. <laughs> then we could have written over the chapter, Mission Accomplished. There are some commentators who think that the climax of the book of Jonah comes at the end of chapter 3. I could not disagree more. The greatest climax in the book of Jonah comes in the fourth chapter. For you see, the Lord is not through teaching his prophet, nor is he through teaching us. You would be a greatly handicapped individual without the truths of chapter 4. The longer I study the Word of God, the more profoundly impressed I am with its honesty. When God paints the portrait of an individual, he paints him warts and all. God not only presents Jonah's successes, but also his shortcomings. Not only his fruit, but his failure. Let me take just a moment to relate chapter 4 to chapter 3. Chapter 3, God is ministering through the prophet. In chapter 4, he is ministering to the prophet. In chapter 3, God is sustaining a ministry to a city. In chapter 4, he's sustaining a ministry to an individual. So you move from a wide-angle shot given by the Holy Spirit to a zoomer lens that focuses upon one person, the prophet. In chapter 3, we have God's power to redeem. In chapter 4, God's power to refine. Now in chapter 4, Jonah matriculates in DTS. That's not Dallas Theological Seminary, but Divine Theological Seminary. It's a classroom scene. The professor is Jehovah, the student, Jonah. 
And God has three courses in his curriculum for his prophet. Each of these three courses is designed for a very specific need in the life of his servant. Verses 1 through 4, Jonah enrolls in a course in attitude. In verses 5 through 8, he registers for a course in consistency. And finally, in verses 9 through 11, he takes a needed course in perspective. Attitude, consistency, perspective. Let's look at these three courses. You may want to enroll in one or more of them. First, let's look at the course God gave him in attitude in the first four verses. You mark it well, this chapter begins with a very strong connective, with a but. This is the corner word in Scripture. And I'm sure you noticed in our study how often it occurs in the book of Jonah. This connective forces you to go back into the immediately preceding context. You see, in chapter 3... The chapter closes with Nineveh repenting. Chapter 4 opens with Jonah remonstrating. The text says, but it greatly displeased Jonah. What displeased Jonah? The answer is back in verse 10 of chapter 3. He was greatly displeased with the repentance of the Ninevites, with the fact that God Almighty spared that wicked city. He was hot. He was impatient. He was out of sorts with God. In fact, the text says, and he became angry. Now, I'm sure all of you have heard, if not read, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, in this chapter, you have God in the hands of an angry sinner. (laughs) He's really ticked off. Now, I wouldn't ask you to raise your hands, but is there anyone in this room who has ever been ticked off with God? Don't look so convicted. (laughs) How would you like it put into the scripture for life? (laughs) Now here I am trying to serve Jesus and be faithful. And now look. I wonder if Paul ever had to put up with these problems. 
So verse 2 tells us he prayed to the Lord. And he said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? I told you so. And if you'd have listened to me, we wouldn't have gotten into this rhubarb. You want to know if I'm a true prophet or not? The test of a true prophet is whether his prophecy comes to pass. And I told you that if I went over there and preached, this is what would happen, and that's exactly what happened. Now, the key to understanding Jonah's problem is in the little expression, my country. Ladies and gentlemen, watch the paralysis of provinciality. My country. My church. My denomination. My group. That's devastating. You see, Jonah thought he had a corner on the grace of God. Nobody does. So he says, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. This is why I went there. I tried to head you off at the pass. For I know, and I want you to mark what he knows. He knows five things. This man was a great theologian. He passed his theology exam. He to be a good graduate from an evangelical theological institution. For the text tells me he knew first that God was gracious. He knew secondly that God was compassionate. He knew thirdly that he was slow to anger Fourth, that he was abundant in loving kindness. And fifth, that he was one who relents concerning calamity. Mark it well. This man's problem is not orthodoxy. It's orthopraxy. The truth that he believed did not control his life. He knew that God was gracious and loving and compassion, compassionate, but he did not want to be the channel of a gracious, loving, compassionate God, at least in Nineveh. It's very interesting to note that this individual did the right things with the wrong attitude. You see, in chapter 1, he had his mind. In chapter 2, he had his will. In chapter 3, he had his body, but he never had his heart. And that's a problem with many a Christian. So you can teach a Sunday school class. You can go out sharing your faith. You can conduct your little... Discipleship program, you can preach from your pulpit doing the right things, but without your heart being in it. My friends, the emphasis of the Word of God is never on what you are doing. 
It is always on why you are doing it. You see, we often think that when we have done the will of God, we're finished. By no means. How did you do it? Why did you do it? Did you just crank it out mechanically? It's very interesting when you read through the minor prophets, how often this sin comes to the surface. God says, don't bring your sacrifices. They make me throw up. I'm weary of all of your religious routine. Why? Lord, we're bringing what you told us to. Right. But not with the right heart attitude. See, Jonah had a bad case of B.A. By the way, that's worse than B.O. You need a little left guard for this. So therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I'm turning in my prophet's badge. Because you nullified my ministry. I went over to Nineveh and told him, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And it wasn't. And you've embarrassed me. So I believe in verse 4, very softly and tenderly, the Lord asks a penetrating question. God is a good teacher. He's a magnificent counselor. He knows how to ask the right questions. The question he asks is, do you have good reason to be angry? Let me ask you that question. Do you have good reason to be angry? Any bitter people here tonight? Anyone resentful? Anyone still ticked off at God because he took your child? Because he broke up your marriage? Because he never gave you the promotion down at the office which you obviously deserve. Because the people at the church really don't appreciate your spiritual gifts and your heart for discipleship. Ladies and gentlemen, the evangelical community is covered with bitter Hostile, resentful people. Will you turn over to the New Testament to to see how the Holy Spirit anticipates this as a problem in Christian experience. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. Paul writes, Get rid of all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander, along with every form of malice. 
You know what that says? You need a good attitudinal house cleaning. A few years ago, a friend of mine in Texas said, Hendricks, you've been in Texas a long time. I want you to see something you have never seen before. So he took me out to a little town in West Texas called Sweetwater, where they have a rattlesnake hunt every year. They start about 7 o'clock in the morning, they go till 7 o'clock at night, and they end up with this massive barbecue in the city square. It's a fantastic experience. And I came to that square, and I have never seen so many rattlesnakes in all of my life. I mean to tell you, my friend, they were piled high. Pinkies! Little bitty ones. <laughs> you know, as I stood by those piles of rattlesnakes, I thought to myself, if I were to take the venom directly out of one of those snakes and put it directly into your system, I wouldn't hurt you as much as you and I are hurting some of the most significant people in our life by our attitude. See, I have people come to me all the time. Their kids have kicked over the tracers. They're out hell raising. And they say, you know, what, what more could I have done? I took them to church every time the doors were open. We had prayer before every meal. We read the Bible. And in the very spilling out of their venom, they are tipping their hand. Bad attitude. I want to be very frontal with you tonight, my friend. I couldn't care less how many times you take your kids to church, how many times you read the Bible to them, how many times you pray with them. If you've got poisonous attitudes, you are giving them the contagion. You are slicing the throat of Christianity. I have a guy with whom I've been working for some time. This guy's the most... Hostile guy I've ever seen in my life. He's ticked off at God. God shafted him, he told me. He's ticked off at his wife. She never has had the picture. Ticked off at his kids. One day he said to me, my four kids, they're the barriers that kept me going where God wants me to go. He's ticked off at the government. They ripped them off in the income tax. Ticked them off at the church. They never had had the picture down there. And most of all, he hates himself. And I built enough of a relationship with him, and I said to him, you don't want to know what your problem is? Yeah, 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 he said, I will. He said, how would you like me to give it to you? I never tell it like it is. I said, you are an angry person. And you know what? He got angry with me. <laughs> that guy stormed out of my office. It took him three months to screw up enough courage to come back. Walked in my office and said, all right, now what do we do with it? Now, look at verse 32. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. This is the positive side. Forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know what your attitude ought to be? The attitude that Jesus Christ sustains to you. You know that favorite sin of yours? You got it in mind? The one you committed 3,419 times last week? You got that one? Suppose the 3,418th time God said, What, are you here again? Man, you were just here five minutes ago. Gabriel, go get the club. See, God's attitude 
toward you is the pattern of your attitude toward other people. I am naive enough to believe there's a man, there's a woman, there's a young person in this room who is going by the Spirit of God to overhaul his attitude tonight and he's going to start on a new departure in his Christian life and ministry. Why, it could revolutionize your marriage. It could totally transform your family life. It could turn your ministry down at the office all out of recognition. Now I know, because I spend a lot of time with people. Most of us who've been around evangelical circles are famous for the front. And we develop tremendous skill at hiding it. See, nobody else knows about it. But down underneath, it boils, it smolders. And ladies and gentlemen, God had to deal with that attitude in Jonah's experience. And he's got to deal with it in my life and in yours. Well, there's a second course. How'd you come out on that first course? (laughs) Verses 5 to 8, a course in consistency. Oh, but somebody says, wait a minute. Jonah never answered that question in verse 4. Yes, he did. He answers it in verse 5. Not verbally, but behaviorally. Not by what he said, but by what he did. Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. What in the world's he doing out of the city? That's the place of ministry. That's the place God called him to. He ought to be involved in that follow-up program. No, he's on the outside of it. What's he doing out there? Well, he makes a shelter for himself. Sits down in the shade. Until he could see, underline that, until he could see what would happen in the city. He's out there on the countdown. Nine, eight, seven, six. He's waiting for God to come through and zap that place. Why? If he were here, he'd say, Did you hear what I told God? Man, that was so serious to me. I told God that's so bad that you can take my life. And God's obviously obligated to do something about that. So I'm just going to sit here and wait. And when God blasts that city, man, I'm going to have a seat on a 50-yard line. But nothing happens. Except God goes to work on the prophet. So in verse 6, the Lord God appointed three things. In verse 6, a plant. In verse 7, a worm. In verse 8, a wind. These are God's tools, His instruments, educators, His teaching materials to communicate with His prophet. 
First thing God pointed was a plan. Grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. It's probably the castor oil plan. It's enough to deliver him from his discomfort. Fast-growing plant, wide leaves. Just act like a big beach umbrella. What was Jonah's reaction to that? Well, look at the last part of the verse. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. (laughs) How does that grab you? Now, if you've got a little pen or a pencil, draw a line from extremely happy in verse 6 to greatly displeased and angry in verse 1. What made him angry? The conversion of the Ninevites. What made him happy? The creation of a plant. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a parable. While you're laughing, you better learn. So you tell me what you're angry over. You tell me what you're happy over, and I'll tell you what kind of a person you are. I will read you your spiritual barometer. See, the plan becomes his security blanket. It's his thing. And we're going to see how very attached he is to this thing. Now, of course, there's nobody here with this problem. More attached to things than people. Turned on by things, turned off by the lost. Well, in verse 7, God decides to bug him. It's getting late in the week for that. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day and revolting development, it attacked the plant and it withered. Now, it's a very interesting insight because the worm in the Hebrew text is singular. But it is probably to be understood as a collective noun and may probably have referred to a swarm of caterpillars. You see, if it was one worm, he could have trodden the thing down. But he's got an army of the things moving in on him. And it sucks the life out of his little plant. And And when it withers, Jonah withers with it. So in verse 8, there's another disaster to bring Jonah to his senses. Isn't it interesting the means that God uses to get this guy's attention? He came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind. That's the Sirocco wind. If you ever feel it, you will never forget it. It's that blistering wind that whips off of that eastern desert and scorches everything in front of it. I was in Palestine one time 
when this was blowing at full fury and you could not find anybody but a couple uninformed tourists running around on the street. Everybody heads for cover. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head. Ha! Probably ball. <laughs> One of the original members of the Chrome Dome. Not sufficient ground cover. So that he became faint. That's an interesting term. Because you remember I said these are tools. These are instruments. These are visuals that God is using with a prophet. And God is saying to the prophet, you are feeling physically what I am feeling spiritually. And he begged with all of his soul to be forgiven. Is that what your text says? Not exactly. To die. And then he puts his little record on. Death is better to me than life. Verse 3, it's the same memorized speech. Take me home. Now the interesting thing is, this is the only, the only unanswered prayer in the book. By the way, this is a book of prayer. Did you notice that? There's prayer in every single chapter. In chapter 1, the sailors pray. It's prayer and fear. In chapter 2, Jonah prays. It's prayer and faith. In chapter 3, the Ninevites pray. It's prayer and fasting. In chapter 4, Jonah's praying again, and it's prayer and foolishness. Do you ever thank God for unanswered prayer? Do you ever think of some of the ridiculous things you ask God for? Many years ago, I was a youth director in a church in Aurora, Illinois, and there was a woman in that church who had designs for me. Don't misunderstand. It was with respect to her daughter. She was convinced it was God's will I marry her daughter. She told me every Lord's Day. She'd come with verses of Scripture and say, Look, God told me. Well, I said, Wonderful, madam, but he never informed me of the fact. One day she told me that she had a dream that I was married to her daughter. I have another term for this. <laughs> Finally, she got so exasperated with me, she said, You're supposed to be a man of God. I don't see why you can't say it. I'm going to pray for you. Well, do you ever thank God for unanswered prayer? <laughs> Tremendous blessing. Let me ask you a pointed question. Why didn't God answer this prayer? He's been down this road a couple times. He tried to resign right in the first part of the book. And he's still pulling off that deal. Why doesn't God take him up on it? Say, okay, John, that's it. <laughs> Finish. I'll tell you why. Because God is far more concerned than about an individual delivering a message. He is interested in developing the man, the person. 
See, from God's standpoint, what did he want Nineveh to do? Why did he go cry, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown? And he did that. Phenomenal results. God got his objective. Not entirely. Only his objective with respect to Nineveh. He's still interested in his objective in the life of the prophet Jonah. You know what the point of this passage is? God is dealing with Jonah in grace, but Jonah is not responding in kind. You see, if God had dealt with Jonah the way Jonah wanted God to deal with the Ninevites, he'd be at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's your problem. That's my problem. The inconsistency whereby we want God to deal with us on one basis and we want him to deal with other people on an entirely different basis. Lord, forgive me for my sin, but zap my brother for the same sin. And ladies and gentlemen, as in attitudes, God's acceptance of you becomes the basis of your acceptance with others. Is that consistent? That's unconditional love. Think of what that would do to your partnership in marriage. Do you accept your partner on a performance basis? I'll love you, wife, if. Yes, sweetheart, I'll be glad to be submissive if. No, there's no what if. In the contract. It's no matter what. How about your kids? You know the great problem in evangelical homes? I'll tell you. Most kids are reared on a performance basis. I will love you if. Boy, I heard it some time ago in a shopping center in Dallas. I just break out a cold sweat every time I hear it. Johnny, don't do that. Mother won't love you. I'm going to crawl underneath the concrete. Ladies and gentlemen, you love your child no matter what that child does. You may not like what they do, but you love them. And it's very interesting how many people communicate conditional love to their children. And the reason is, we're on a performance basis with God. And if you're on a performance basis with God, I'll clue you, you are on a performance basis with your partner. You are on a performance basis with everybody you work with. And that's why sometimes the hardest person to get to work with an alcoholic is a former alcoholic. How long did it take you to get off of alcoholism? A guy said to me, man, it took me 27 years. But you want this guy off in 27 minutes. Today, preferably the day before yesterday. Just back off, dear friends, before you drop off to sleep tonight, as Jim suggested so effectively. Fill your mind 
with where you would be tonight if God had you on a performance basis. You would be hopelessly lost if not already in hell. It's the grace of God that when a man says, Lord, I've had it, take me home, God never answers his prayer. Because he says, no, my son, you've got more to learn. I love you unconditionally, and I want you to love people the same way. Isn't that beautiful? Well, say something. You still out there? Yeah. Where's your camera? You missed the choice one. Third. Here's the third course he taught. This is quite a profound seminary, isn't it? You go all the way through Dallas without ever learning any one of these three. Don't publish it. Verses 9 through 11. He enrolls in the school of perspective. And I believe, my friends, this is the climax of the book. This is where God tears the mask off. He tears the mask off of Jonah's heart and he tears the mask off of his own heart and you peer directly in to both hearts. What a study in contrast. Then God said to Jonah, Notice the question again. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry. Even to death. You see, he's hotter now. It was Mr. Moody who said, if you take a stick and throw it in a pack of dogs, the one that gets hit will yell the loudest. It's amazing what conviction does to people. Boy, they can get unusually hostile. Because you see, it's probing, it's threatening, it's getting in rather close. So then the Lord said, you, will you underline that and put a great big circle around that? There are two pronouns that give you the interpretation to this passage. The you in verse 10 and the I in verse 11. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work. You made no investment. And which you did not cause to grow. That was not the result of your productivity. Which came up overnight and perished overnight. Will you please underline the word perished and circle the repetition of overnight. That's the key to the contrast. You had compassion on a perishing overnight plant. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. Please note, this is not a population statistic. 
This is a Hebraism. He says it's 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. In other words, they have not reached the point of responsibility where they can discern between left and right. Small children. And, P.S., as well as many animals of great worth in this culture. You got the message? You see, God is saying to the prophet, you are going to have to learn the difference between that which is permanent and that which is perishable. Plants perish. People are eternal. Can you distinguish between that which is permanent and that which is perishable? That's the mark of spiritual maturity. A number of years ago, it was my privilege to minister in India. Great country. Hardly wait to get back. I've never seen greater degradation. Never seen people die right in front of my eyes on the, on the street. I've never seen such filth. In 60 countries of the world... In India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, you don't hit the bottom, you break clean through. And I was invited to speak in a leprosarium. I'd never had that privilege before. There were a lot of older patients there before the advances in medicine, which have gone so far in lifting the ravishes of this disease if it can be caught early enough. It was an afternoon meeting, Sunday afternoon. Never forget it. It's etched in my mind eternally. There must have been about 40, 50 lepers in various stages of leprosy. Before I got up to preach, the guy said to me, Brother, would you mind if we had a little sharing session? I said, I'd love to. And one after another of these lepers got up and gave their testimony. What an experience. In a little while, a little lady down in the third row, I believe the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life, and I'm obviously not talking about the superficial standards of Hollywood, stood up, held up both hands or arms with all fingers gone and said, thank God I'm a leper. Because through my leprosy, I came to know Jesus Christ. And I'd rather be a leper and know him than to be completely whole and a stranger to his grace. And I said, thank you, Lord. I finally found someone who can distinguish between the permanent and the perishable. Can you? See, where are you putting all your time? Your energy, your bucks. Have you ever gotten an eternal viewpoint with the realization that every single thing you are involved in on planet Earth is in the process of perishing? Except 
building spiritually into the life of people. You see, I look into the heart of Jehovah and I find this tremendous greatness of heart. And I look into the heart of Jonah and I find I'm looking into my own heart. The narrowness, the provinciality, the self-centeredness, the constant aggrandizement of things for me. For my family, for my church, for my country, for my organization. It's the contrast, my friend, between the grace of God and the greed of Jonah. By the way, where are you? Can you identify? Someone has called this the Old Testament, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. You see, this passage teaches me that God loves lost people. He also loves spiritually out-to-lunch believers. That's such a comfort to my heart. See, it's so easy to dump it out there in the pagans. God loves you! I get news for you, my friend. He loves you. And just as he chased down with his hot breath, the prophet Jonah. He's chasing you with his love. Everything in this book obeys except Jonah. The wind, the waves, the sailor, the fish, the Ninevites, the worm, the plant, the wind... And the prophet's running off doing his thing with God after him. You identify with that? Oh, but somebody says, wait a minute. This is a book that ends with a question mark. Why, we're left dangling in the air. I can't stand it. Not really. Who wrote the book? Jonah wrote the book. And I believe in the providence of God. With God's gracious pursuit, he learned the lessons from the courses. You talk about security. Takes an awful lot of a non-threatening individual to expose himself to tell a story like this, to clutter up the biblical text for all time, so that the only thing you can ever remember is Jonah. As the doctor mentioned the other night, the runaway prophet. And it's beautiful. As we wrap up our study, let me ask you three questions. How's your attitude? Nobody here but us chickens. Nobody here to impress. Still bitter? 
Still resentful? Still hostile? On the inside, I got wonderful news. You can dump it tonight with absolutely no loss. It's one of the most exciting things in my ministry come in seminary. When a student come into my office and we get deeply embroiled, and this guy's covered over with hostility toward his parents, and see God deliver him right in front of my eyes. Guy walks into a class the next day, I can't believe it's the same student. He's ticked off because he thought his parents shafted him. He gave him the hot end of a poker. They did the best they could, but as far as he's concerned, it wasn't too impressive. But don't dump it there because there are all kinds of other reasons. Second question. Are you consistent? Do you really relate to other people the way God relates to you? See, some of you people can't stand smoke. You can't stand liquor. You can't stand some language because that's your hang-up. I'm not suggesting you embrace any of these. But can you accept that pagan who may be hung up with his or her habit because you love them the way Jesus Christ loves them and the way he loves you? Or is your attitude toward pagans? You shape up, and then I'll be glad to pour you out a little of my gospel in my flask. I can guarantee you hanging around the cowboy locker room is a very, very straining experience. I hear a lot. I would prefer not to hear. But by the grace of God, I'm loving those guys for Christ's sake. Because when I was out using the same kind of language... There was somebody helping me. I'll never forget. After I came to Christ, you know, you get a lot of hangover. They invited me to go to a youth party. So we played some games. I get lost in the games. Forgot where I was. Right in the middle of the game. I said, man, I thought you were a Christian. I thought I was too. Still take you to the corner in 7th and Cayuga Streets in Philadelphia. And the electric light I sat out under and said, well, I guess it wasn't real. And I felt the strongest arm go around me. And I looked up into the face of a guy who said, that's okay, Holly. I understand. And took out a little gospel, New Testament, and opened the 1 John 1, 9. That was my first introduction to that verse. Third question. How's your perspective? Need to make some mid-course corrections? Before you go back to Kansas, Oklahoma, Dallas, wherever you are? You need an eternal perspective. And maybe you've been spending all of your time, your energy, 
your money. Collecting the finest collection of junk you can assemble under one mortgage. (laughs) And someday, I can guarantee you on the basis of the Word of God, there will be a fire test. And then only that which is gold and silver and precious stones, that is, that which is permanent, will really remain. Let's pray. Father, many of us tonight do have to make some mid-course corrections with our attitudes, with our inconsistency, and also with our humanistic perspective. And we thank you so much for your word that probes and penetrates deep into heart and mind and exposes our sin but also cleanses and leads us in the way everlasting. Father, we thank you for the way you have spoken to us this week through so many avenues. And we're deeply grateful and pray that eternity may feel the impact of the decisions that each of us makes as a result of our exposure to your truth. Thank you for the fact that we are in Christ and therefore you have given us an eternal quality of life. So as we go into our talent night, we pray that with biblical perspective, you will enable us to see that there's nothing incongruent, that you created us to enjoy life to the full. And help us, as we do it tonight, to realize it's all because of the reality of Jesus Christ. And our fun will have no regret because it's in him. But Father, while we're enjoying it, also remind us that down below is a world broken at the wheel that desperately needs to know the Savior that makes this week so meaningful to us. So help us not to wrap our smug coats of complacency about us, enjoy our fun and suck up the word, and let the rest of the world go to a Christless eternity. We pray, our Father, that you will sober us, you will challenge us, and you will enrich us, because we ask it believingly through Christ our Lord. Amen.